All right, I'm going to make a comment about the Bibles that I make every week. But before I do that, I want to tell you, you can get one, okay? Not right this very second, but when the service is over, we have a Reformation Study Bible for you in the back. We even have like paperback now. They're $15, or you can buy the hardback for $25. If this is your church and you don't have that much money, pay what you can. If you can't pay anything and you're really going to use it, just take it, because every week I'm going to start like this. Are you ready? If you have your Bibles... And I do mean that. Then I want you to turn with me and then to John chapter 2 as we continue today with our study of the Gospel of John that we began this year with and that we are calling very simply the Word. And if you've been hanging out with us for the past couple of weeks, then you know who the Word is. I say who because the Word is not a what. The Word is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When John comes to us and he talks to us about the Word at the beginning of his Gospel, the person that he's talking about is Jesus. The person he's introducing us to is Jesus. The person that we've come then to study is Jesus. He is our topic. He is our subject. He is the focus, not just of our songs, but of our study. We've said every week that we want to know the Word and live the Word yet again this year, meaning the written Word of God, the Bible that God and grace has given to us, but that we want to focus our time in the Word on Christ, that we might know Him better and better live for Him. So that's why we're studying the Gospel of John together, but we're not just studying the Gospel of John together, we're studying how to study the Gospel of John together too, in case you haven't noticed. What I've been teaching you to do is how to read your Bible on your own, one of the reasons I'm passionate about you having one. We're tasting God's Word. We're chewing upon God's Word. We're taking it in. We're digesting it slowly. We're savoring God's Word and all of the various flavors thereof. And we're reading it, taking it in, digesting it, if you will, the way that it's meant to be taken in, course by course, bite by bite, bit by bit, word by word, thought by thought, line by line, and image by image. That is very important. The Bible speaks all over the place in images. It comes to us with metaphor after metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. And I'll tell you, if all you're doing is plainly reading the Scripture, surface-level reading only, and you miss the metaphors, you miss the glory, you miss the message. And that is so much of what John wants to show us today in this story. Today, John is going to give us the story of the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus and of his very first miracle, and he gives it to us for a very specific reason. He states his purpose at the very end of the story. So he comes to us in chapter 2, and he gives us a story in verses 1 through 10, and then in verse 11, he says, and here's why I gave you the story. He says this, he says, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and what? Why did he do the miracle? He manifested his glory. And what was the end result of that? He says, and then his disciples who saw his glory believed in him and then, of course, just resumed their life, you know, like it never happened. No. They believed in him and were never the same again. Saving faith is a transformational faith. It shows up in the way that you live. And so Jesus did not perform this miracle that we're going to look at today to please his mom, though I guarantee you it pleased his mom. He doesn't do it to save the bridegroom, though it saves him in ways that frankly are hard for us to categorize, fathom, and understand as 21st century Americans. 
He doesn't do it to extend the life of the party, though believe you me, it extended the life of the party. Jesus performs this miracle to manifest his glory before his disciples so that they will believe in him in a life transformational kind of way. And John then, one of those disciples, records it for us in his gospel that we might, as we taste and chew and savor upon its metaphors and images, see that same glory and believe in that same Jesus in the same kind of life transformational kind of way. But here's the deal. Again, we won't see his glory if we miss the images. That is to say, if we come to this story and we don't recognize that when Jesus talks about his hour, he's not even talking about a 60-minute deal. He's certainly not talking about an hour that's happening and this wedding story that we're going to be reading about. So what in the world is he talking about? That when the Lord talks about wine, and you read about it here, wine is not just wine. Wine's not just something you fill your glass with and drink. It's that, but there's a whole other level. Water in stone jars. I mean, what is this stuff? Because it's not just water in stone jars. And the wedding that we have the privilege of looking in upon this morning is not the only wedding in play. And the bride and the bridegroom are not the only bride and bridegrooms at issue as well. So keep that in mind as we pick up our study today, John 2, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. John writes this. He says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, I want to stop and do a little experiment, okay? How many of you, this is the story where Jesus turns water to wine. You've read this story in the Bible on your own before today. Raise your hand. All right, lots of folks. Not everybody, but most. Some of you who haven't read it, we're getting kind of excited about reading it, maybe, and then I just gave away the end of the movie, but I didn't. Actually, because you don't yet know what the wine is. All right, many of you have read it. How many of you in reading that story have ever stopped after those first four words, on the third day, and asked why they're there? I mean, why in the world does John, who is giving us this story for the express purpose of helping us as we taste and chew and savor its images... See the glory of Christ in a life-transformational, faith-changing kind of way. Why does he tell us that this story took place on the third day? And why is that in there? Anybody ever ask that question? I'd like one guy in the first service. We almost never ask those questions. Yet this is the Word of God, right? In every word of it. There are no frivolous details, guys. And if you're not asking those kinds of questions, you're not tasting it, you're not chewing upon it, you're not savoring it at least to the degree that you ought as you begin to taste and chew and savor. What you realize is that John has been recording a chronology of days starting at the very end of the prologue of his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 18. He gives us his prologue and then he starts to carefully lay out day after day after day. As you read through his narrative, he says things like, and the next day, the next day also, and the next day. And what you realize as you go back and begin to reconstruct this chronology is that there are four days laid out before we get to this story where then he says, on the third day, meaning three days from that fourth day. So how many days do we have? Seven days. On the seventh day, Jesus Christ turns water to wine. What else happened in seven days? The story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. I mean, one of the most significant, famous stories in all the Bible a seven-day story 
What is John implicating? I mean, what is he saying about the wine that Christ makes? And I'm going to put the word wine in quotes. He's saying that it has the power to create. It has the power manifested by the Lord God at the beginning of all things, where He spoke the worlds into being, where He made all things out of nothing. He's saying that the wine of Christ has the ability to create something completely and utterly new in you and in all those who by faith take it in. But what does all that mean? It's metaphor, isn't it? Well, let's look at it. John says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, which is about nine miles or so from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And look who's there. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And Jesus also not just showed up, but he was invited. So he also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And what you need to understand about these weddings in ancient days is that they didn't take place basically in an hour on a Saturday afternoon. They were a week-long, generally speaking, village-encompassing event in which the groom, who was accompanied by a torch-lit parade at night, would go to the home of his bride. And he would receive her from the home of his parents, and he would take her back to the home that he had been preparing for her. And then he, the bridegroom, would then host a week-long feast that he was completely responsible for, including, by the way, the giving of the wine. And the whole place would celebrate. And the fact that Mary and Jesus were there kind of suggests that they were probably related to either the bride or the groom, or at the very least, they were very, very close friends to have made the trip to be a part of this. And it also explains Mary's somewhat panic going on here in the story, because in verse 3 it says, when the wine ran out, the idea being long before the wedding feast was done, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. And she's not saying this to kind of bring him up to speed as to the wine situation. Oh, hey, got a little bit of trivia for you. We just ran out of wine. She's saying this because it's devastating culturally. It's hard for us to kind of imagine this because, you know, I mean, we go to a wedding and they run out of wine and we're like, that's eh, unfortunate. But it's not that big of a deal, is it? Then, huge deal. This is an ancient Near Eastern shame-based culture. And there is a lot of pride attached to this feast. And it is the groom's responsibility to make sure that they don't run out of anything at all, including wine, And if they do, it will be remembered against them for the rest of their lives. It's crazy. I was reading about this. It would even open up the groom to lawsuits from the bride's family. Can you imagine that? Because they've invited all their friends and relatives, and all of a sudden now they too have been shamed by his failure. So if trouble with in-laws is one of the three big areas of issue in marriage, this is not a good way to start. And Mary gets this. So Mary is coming to Jesus. She's coming to him with a major problem. And note it, it's a major problem that needs to be dealt with right now because John says, when the wine ran out. He doesn't say when they thought the wine was about to run out. You know, they calculated everybody, okay, how much are we drinking by the day by day? All right, we only have this much left. Oh, good grief. You know, by tomorrow afternoon, we're going to be out. No, they're out. So the next person who goes to ask for the glass of wine is going to discover to the humiliation of this couple that there is none. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. And she is not saying this, guys, to simply bring him up to speed on the wine situation. 
She's saying this to say, you know what? I need you to do something here. I'm like looking for you to save the day. And it's not all that clear as to exactly what it is or how it is, I guess, that she was expecting him to do it. Because this is the record of his first miracle. So think about that for a minute. In other words, it's not like he shows up having you know this great track record of miracles that he's been doing all of his life and that his mother's very well aware of. And so now he shows up at the wedding and they run out of wine and mom's coming to him and going, okay, look, we need you to do another miracle. And I'm thinking it's water to wine because we have some of that. It's not clear what she's really asking him to do in terms of how to fix the problem. It is clear that she's asking him to fix the problem. And so we read again, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, no doubt in great distress and urgency and looking for help from Jesus, said to Jesus, they have no wine and I need you to do something about it. And notice carefully what Jesus says to her in response. For we read, and Jesus said to her, and here we go. Now just digest this as a mom. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm thinking that's not what she's looking for. It almost sounds disrespectful in the English language. In the original language, it's clear that, it's, that he's not being disrespectful, but it is also clear that he's making a point. He's making a point to his mother, and then through this, he's making a point to his brothers and sisters, who I'm sure were there, to the rest of his family member, who I'm, I'm sure were there, to his disciples who were there. And to everyone who comes along thereafter and tastes and chews and savors these words. And what's the point? The point is that there is only one way to approach the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's how he's been introduced in this gospel thus far. And how is that? It is as a humble, contrite, penitent sinner who is approaching his or her Savior. That's it. One way. And only one way. You know, a lot of us walk around thinking for some reason that we're good people and that as a result of the fact that we're good people by our own standards and by our own measures or maybe even by the standards and measures of those around us, that of course Jesus is going to listen to us, that we can approach Jesus at any time about anything, that, you know, Jesus is someone obligated to give us an audience, to grant our requests, to come through for us in a fix, which is generally the only time we talk to him. Guys, that doesn't work for his mom. That's a pretty severe message, isn't it? One way to approach Christ, and that is as one who understands you need Him to forgive you, to make you whole, to make you clean. Mary gave birth to Jesus. Mary nursed Jesus. Mary fed Jesus. Mary taught Jesus to feed Himself. Think of the irony of that. I mean, the God who did Himself speak the worlds into existence. She's changing His diapers. She's helping Him toddle along. She's teaching Him how to talk. And yet when even she comes with a big problem, she came the wrong way. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus in great distress came to Jesus looking for help and said to Jesus, they have no wine. And here's his response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? To which he then adds, and it's confusing, (laughs) my hour has not yet come. Now, if you're tasting and chewing and savoring as you're reading through, as opposed to just reading through a story that you've read a hundred times, oh yeah, this is the one where Jesus turns water to wine. I've already read that. Turn the page. 
but you're taking it in, you've got to stop there and go, okay, what does that mean? I mean, hour? What hour? That's the beauty of having one of these study Bibles. Now you start checking your cross-references and you realize, hey, you know what, this phrase, hour, this, this happens in the Gospel of John and everywhere else that it happens in the Gospel of John, guess what you learn? It's referring to the hour of his death. The hour where he will take upon himself the sin and guilt and shame and humiliation and impurity. That's a big part of the program here in this story of his people. And he will wash it away with what? With the wine of his blood. For that's how he speaks of his blood. He speaks of it as a wine. So Mary comes to Jesus with a legit problem. It threatens to bring undying humiliation, perhaps even on one of their relatives. And it has a very real time schedule attached to it. And Jesus responds to her with this statement that seemingly at least has little, if anything, at all to do with what she's talking about. He says this, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And again, that ought to cause you to ask, well, exactly what hour, Jesus, are you talking about? Because I have to believe that's what Mary must have thought. I mean, if I was Mary, I would have said, what? You know, I, you're what? Your hour is not yet. Well, thanks a lot. Can we talk about this? Because I don't know where you're at, but I'm at a wedding. And in this wedding, we're in the midst of a crisis. And this crisis is affecting somebody that we care a whole lot about. And it's going to impact their reputation in this community for the rest of their life. And you're talking about your hour. I'm talking about the fact that this thing's going to blow up in three minutes. So thanks. And can we have that conversation later? Can we now talk about now? Because what I need is help now. Now, wait a minute. Have you ever been there? We've all been there. Lord, I need to make a decision, and the phone's going to ring at 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> like, that's it. Tick, tick, tick. And I'm sure he's just sweating with anxiety. No, but you and I are. Hey, Lord, you know what? As I'm standing at the bedside of a dying person, we got one last shot. That would be you. And not much time. We are time-bound creatures. Finite little people. Feeling the pressures of time. And seeing, generally speaking also, only one part of the picture, and that's the tiny little part that is ours. And missing entirely all of the parts that fill in all around it. Fretting and worrying over what's going on in our lives. Mary is very different. Very, very different. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And notice what she does. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, what is she saying there? What is she doing? She's taking this matter that she is no doubt massively distressed over, and she is humbly submitting it to the greater wisdom and to the greater timing of her Savior. She's saying, in a sense, you know what, God, I have made my request known to you. I know that you have heard the request that I have made known to you. And I know that I actually don't have it all figured out. And I can't see it all. And I am going to peacefully rest 
in whatever it is that you decide to do in this situation. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, okay? But how many of you have ever done that? It's hard to do. I think that we're exceptionally good at telling the Lord exactly how it is that He needs to help us and exactly when it is that He needs to help us in our all-sovereign, all-seeing minds. But I don't think we're that good at peacefully submitting to what He decides to do. He's not similarly limited. Not in time, not in vision. In fact, not even death destroys His purposes or forestalls His healings. Verse 5, Mary, his mother, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And now notice what Jesus does and notice why he does it. He doesn't do it to please his mom. Sorry, moms. But he doesn't. Or to bail out the bridegroom or to keep the party gets None of that. What he's doing here is he's taking advantage of a real-life opportunity that has presented itself to him to make a massive statement that goes way beyond this wedding and speaks to a far greater wine than what he's going to make. It says, now there were six stone water jars, full of water is the point, there for the Jewish rites of what? Because it's a word you've already heard, purification. That's what's at issue. In each of them, another frivolous detail. Oh, nope, sorry, there are no frivolous details. Each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. So when you add it all up, it's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. It's a lot of water. And the reason that they're there is so that everyone at this feast, as they go in and out of the home, they would position them at the doors, could wash their hands according to the laws of Moses and the ritual purification rites of the Jews before and after every single meal over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the waters of Moses don't clean in an enduring fashion. The Lord is going to provide something else that does. Or at least he's going to gesture toward it. Verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, Keyword: each holding 20 or 30 gallons, a lot of water. And so notice what Jesus does. He said to the servants, Fill the jars with fresh water is the point, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, to the chief steward, to the head waiter. And so they draw, and they took it to him. And when the master of the feast tasted this water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom whose responsibility, again, it was to provide wine for the wedding and said to him, everyone, because this is our wedding custom, serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have violated that custom and that you have kept the good wine until now. It says something about the wine of the Lord. It's the very best wine. And then John says, and we've already heard it, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and then what happened? And his disciples believed in him, and one of these disciples who believed in him, the apostle John, then wrote all of this stuff down so that when we come to it and taste and chew and savor it, as opposed to just going, oh, yeah, it's that story, and okay, and what's next? We can see His glory as well and be drawn in faith in a transformational way to believe in Him. What is Jesus doing here? I mean, what is the glory-revealing message in this particular miracle? Jesus is standing at the very beginning of His public ministry and He's forecasting the end. 
He's saying in some sense, hey, I just want you guys to know that a day is coming not too many years down the road here when I, the bridegroom of the church, well, I'm going to be taken by a torchlit parade at night. And I'm going to be led to a home, but not of my bride, of my enemy, who himself has conspired against me to put me to death. And in fact, that's exactly what they're going to do on the cross, where I'm going to take upon myself the sin and the shame and the guilt, the humiliation, the impurities of my people that cannot be washed away with all of these rites and rituals. And I'm going to wash it away with the only cleansing agent that works, with the wine of my blood. And I'm going to do that so that all who come to me in faith as a sinner who approaches his or her Savior, not as somebody who thinks they deserve to be here, but as one who comes humbly recognizing that they don't deserve to be here, and yet that by grace Christ receives all comers. I'm going to do that so that those people might be made pure. There's a lot going on in this story. It's quite a few things to taste and chew upon. And by the way, I mean, maybe you notice, but Jesus doesn't just make a little wine for the people at the feast. He makes way more than enough for everyone that He invites to His feast. And the bridegroom, who is Jesus, does respect the wedding customs of His day and that He brings out the good wine of His gospel first. That's the way it's working. This is the gospel age. The Messianic age, which is associated, by the way, in the Old Testament with an abundance of good wine. He rolls out the good wine of His gospel first before treading out the wine of His wrath. That's coming too. But not for those who come to Him in faith and partake of the wine of His gospel. And the wine of His gospel, which is a good wine, is an intoxicating wine, guys, at least in the sense that it affects our joy, and it affects our speech, and it affects the way that we think. It affects the decisions that we make, decisions that don't make any sense to anyone who isn't drinking it and seem like foolishness. You do what with your time? You do what with your money? You made what kind of a decision? It affects our walk in terms of the way that we live. It affects the way that we treat each other. It is an intoxicating wine that affects every area of our beings. And if it doesn't, then we've got to go back and say, you know, maybe I'm not really drinking this wine. The disciples don't come to faith in Jesus and then go back to their life as if nothing happened. The disciples come to faith in Jesus and then they lay everything at His feet and follow Him wherever He takes them wherever He wants them to go. And then, of course, Jesus endured the torchlit parade and poured out the wine of His blood so that one day He might fulfill the promise that He has made to us, which is what? He's going to come to us, is He not? And take us to the home that even now He is building for us. It's all there for those who taste, for those who chew for those who savor. And so what's the bottom line? I mean, what is John trying to do with this miracle? He's trying to reveal the glory of Christ to us in such a way that just like he did, we believe in Christ. We come to him. We drink by faith of the wine that is his blood, the only cleansing agent that frees and cleanses and purifies from sin and walk away with him differently. 
That's the call of this story. That's the call of this gospel because the gospel of Christ, the blood of His wine, it's transformational. It has the ability and the capacity to make all things new. Okay? So read your Bible like that this week.